our long-term reading and discussion project continues. This time, we're talking about Sandman, a game of you. Just because he made those parts, it's something that's, um, that's worth seeing and how did you get that? I think that's pretty amazing. Cool. So, I watch. All right. And I, then I read five uh, or six six issues of a comic book last night. Yeah, you did. Just for so, you. So, let's <laughs> not worry about Game of Death. Let's talk about a game of you, huh? It's all about games. All right, Paul. Well, I think that it is time to talk about a game of you, which is, I think, one of the more peculiar Sandman stories in the run. This is in issues 32 through 37 of the series, and it's going to get us to just about the halfway point. So that is exciting. We're nearly halfway there. We're living on a prayer as of this story. And uh, yeah, I think it's um, going to be an interesting one. I'm I'm really curious to hear what you think of this one, because this is one that I am not quite sure what to make of. I'm always interested, like one of the things I've learned from having these conversations is I'm interested uh, to see what I'll get out of the conversation because every time we've, we've done one of these Sandman episodes, I've left feeling different ways than I went in and it's never been like, I liked it and then I didn't, or I didn't. And then I did, but it's digging out other things. And like, there's always things that I noticed. And one thing with this one too, I texted you at the beginning and asked you for a reminder about the characters that I should go into this knowing mm-hmm. because I knew like uh Barbie, is the you know the first character I was like I know I should know her but I don't remember from where um, I always have a hard time with that uh, so I asked you for the the refresher and so like a lot of this stuff goes right back to the beginning and then you know of course there's references to um, to other things even if they're indirect so um, that was one thing I wanted to this like I want to know what I should already know going into it because I know that that'll add a little bit to it. Then if I just let it go, and I think I eventually would have figured out who Barbie was um, based on stuff, but it actually was rather deep into it before they started making it um, clear. Really obvious. Yeah. 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 Yeah, They kind of just allude to it before saying, oh, yeah, I moved here with here and I used to have a husband and now I'm here. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. They don't really shove it in your face at first. They eventually do kind of make it very clear that, yes, she was married to Ken. And all that. So I guess, like, the really quick recap of this story is that Barbie is a young woman living on her own, divorced, trying to figure out who she is. And a creature from one of her childhood dreams comes and visits her in the city and gives her an amulet, which is called the Porpentine, and tells her that she needs to save the kingdom. And all of this is a reference to the dream she had as a kid where she's the princess in some magic kingdom and she has to save it from the evil cuckoo. So she then, with this amulet, falls asleep and has to exist in this dream where she's the princess trying to save this kingdom from the evil cuckoo. And her fellow housemates or other people in the apartment building she lives in end up trying to save her or 
help or I guess hurt that in the case of the the one guy and then so they have their own adventure trying to help her and get her out of the dream kingdom and then it all comes to a head in the dream when Morpheus shows up that's my ineloquent <laughs> recap of what this story is about that's a pretty good recap one thing that's interesting with this too is Morpheus is very minimally in this yeah, it's not really until the end that he shows up and does anything. Yeah, you and see him at the beginning like, yeah, let's see what happens. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, as he does. Yeah, <laughs> Things come and go. I'm not going to sweat it too much. Let's just see what happens. <laughs> yeah, so in, as far as the connections go, this is what you asked me about is how where do I know these characters from? Barbie was married to Ken in the A Game of You storyline. And she lived in the um, same building that Rose Walker did. And so when Rose Walker became the dream vortex and everybody's dreams were collapsing in on themselves, we saw this dream once before that Barbie was having where she was this princess in this magic kingdom. And hers was one of the dreams that ended up collapsing in with everybody else's and everybody else ended up having each other's dreams and existed in each other's dreams while Rose was being the vortex and destroying the walls between dreaming. So that's where Barbie is from. And obviously she didn't take that experience very well. She got a divorce from her husband and is now trying to figure out who she is and has given up on the yuppie Barbie lifestyle that she had or that she portrayed in a game of you, not in a game of you in a doll's house. One of the things I think is interesting in this too, um, and something that I've been a bit more conscious of lately is thinking about how old people are and the experiences that they've likely to have had at life when they're going through things as, you know, giving them, and of course, like, you know, age isn't all that matters with it, but typically, you know, if you're in your early twenties and you're dealing with something, you haven't had life experiences yet to to have a certain level of like you know calm or whatever when you're getting through something because as you get older you've been through stuff even if it's not the same thing you know that life will go on you know that you'll get past stuff you know that you know some hard things come and go when you're older those things tend to get easier but then other things tend to get harder and i've kind of been conscious of that myself just for between people i know in real life when i'm reading a story or whatever it's not often in stories like these that they pin down people's ages anyways. And with art, it can always be hard to tell what what age they're representing clearly, uh, especially with us being, you know, decades off from when this happened to where seeing like how fashionable or not people are. Like, I can't look at how somebody's dressing in this and get a good sense of their age based on that because, you know, I was under 10, I think, when this came out or around that age. So it's not like I was caught up in the fashion as much to know, like, what represents a 20-year-old compared to a 30-year-old and so on. But comparing her in this to when she was with Ken and, you know, pretty, you know, yuppie-ish, she feels younger in this than she did in that, although clearly she's older. And -hmm. it makes me wonder, how old was she then? You know, was she... You know, when somebody is is, uh, is yuppie-ish, they instantly seem older because they're more you know, tightened up, you know, they're very strictly functioning with how they look and how they act and stuff like that. And you can seem older than your age when you do that. 
Um, but then in this, she's much looser with, you know, she's not trying to be anything. You know, like you, you said it earlier, she's trying to figure out who she is. She's doing the face painting thing because she wanted to get a tattoo, but then decided she didn't want something permanent. And by painting her face, she could be something different every day. So like in, in the beginning of this, she says she has to get her face on and go out and she paints half of her face like a checkerboard. That's one thing I was kind of thinking of with this is how old is she? And then even even with that, like with what her life experiences were, did that kind of like stunt her growth through stuff? Because um, I've seen that with I have a family member specifically who the experiences that she had for years, by the time she got through those um, and got through an abusive relationship, she hadn't had the development through stuff emotionally that she would have had. So she came out at the other end without having had a chance to be free and experiment with who she was as a person and kind of figure that out. So anyways, that's a little bit of a tangent, but yeah, well they do pinpoint Wanda's age very clearly with the tombstone at the end that Wanda was 25 years old. So it makes me think all of these people are in their mid to late twenties, except for, Obviously, the old guy, I forget his name, the the one that was taken over by the dream and had all the birds come out of him to try to, you know, make them have nightmares. Yeah, I believe that was George. Yeah, that's right, George. And obviously, Thessal- Thessaly, who is tens of thousands of years old or something along those lines. Yeah, she never strictly said it. I like that when, when she got directly and asked the question, the way she answered it was something that, like doesn't actually give the answer but she's so old that like it's kind of beyond our comprehension yeah mm-hmm. she was she was a not super interesting character but I, I like how they presented her like you know there's a lot beneath the surface so like we didn't get to see most of the interesting stuff it's like you just got kind of got a taste of it hmm so I thought she was an extremely interesting character but that's largely because of I know where this goes and what happens. And she's a character that never really comes back as a main character in any story. And she's only really mentioned off on the side of things, I think, except for maybe in one of the very last issues. She shows up for maybe a page or two or something like that. But her effect on the story is very, very great, which we'll get to uh, a couple episodes of this from now. Yeah. I like how in this specifically, I mean, like before we find out that she's something more than just a normal human, she's presented as vanilla. And throughout this, you start to see her do things, but she doesn't give two craps about explaining any of it. She doesn't want to, you know, she just sees that something needs to be done and starts doing it. And essentially you get to the end and like her, her taking them on this journey is not at all about helping Barbie. She's like, eh, she'll end up getting helped in the end, which I don't know if they, if their interference actually did help anything or not. Um, it, yeah, I don't really think it did. But it's all because she just wants to go and kill the cuckoo for even thinking about messing with her, basically. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's like you get that kind of taste of the supernatural being that just even even the thinking about messing with me is a, an offense punishable by death. Yeah. Uh, but mm-hmm. all throughout, it's like, eh, I killed this guy. Eh whatever you know if you're gonna puke don't don't puke on my carpet yeah um she cuts his face off nails it to the wall eh, no big deal i'm not gonna explain this to you you're just you're just gonna have to accept this and we'll move on 
Yeah, so I mean, like she she never explains anything. That's why she's she's still kind of a. Bl- she doesn't care about breaking her bland veneer. You know that she's not a bland person character when you see these things that she does, but she also never explains it so you understand why she's more exciting than the bland character you're initially presented with. And I I like that. It's like uh, you have to just kind of imagine at that point. Yeah, she never like reveals herself to be a something different than what she is she never like reveals oh i'm actually a super powered witch <laughs> and then all yeah. of a sudden it's very different she's just you don't get backstory that like explains what she's done you get none of that you know it's just like yeah she's just very much who she is and it seems like this witchy stuff is just kind of it's just another thing she can do and it's just kind of like oh okay now i have to do this it's almost like oh now i have to cook dinner <laughs> kind yeah. of thing is it seemed like that level of how much prominence it it played. So I think probably the best way to really dig into this story is to talk about Barbie and what she goes through because she's very clearly the main character of this story. And this story to me feels like one where what this is really about is what the characters go through. Like this one feels much less plotty and much more charactery, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. Like this is almost the opposite of Seasons of Mist, which is super, super plotty. And there's some character stuff to go with it. This is almost the opposite where it's like this is all just character stuff that these characters are going through. And then there's some plot to kind of help that along. Yeah, yeah. The the plot in this is basically arbitrary, and the story even calls it out as such. I feel, um, you know, they they repeatedly make like Thessaly makes reference to the dream wants us to come together. But you know, it's like the things that are going to happen are compelled to happen, so we don't really have to worry about what happens. And the the whole plot is is just arbitrary story. And it's all just based on the arbitrary story from when Barbie was a kid and was imagining these things. But it, the, I mean, the whole time through, they're basically like, this is completely arbitrary. So like it, they're telling you the whole time that the plot's arbitrary and it's all about the characters. Yeah. So this is also one where I have a hard time understanding if Neil Gaiman in writing this felt like he had a point he wanted to convey or whether he was just trying to tell an interesting story because it almost feels like he's trying to make some sort of a point that he has some belief or something that he's trying to convey with this story but or some meaning that he's trying to reveal but at the same time Every time I feel like I I dig for that, I come up against, well, this is just kind of a a interesting story about characters and just putting them through something so that we have characters that have experienced something and that that's enough. I think the story is about all these characters uh, trying to find out who they are and battling against past, uh, past traumas for the most part. You know, Barbie 
we've already said um, she's she's battling against the traumas of her previous marriage and how that ended as well. But obviously, like that marriage, she wasn't being who she was. And you saw what Ken's desires were. And he clearly did not care about her for who she was. So, I mean, that's the core of the story. But then you have Wanda, who is 25, transgender, disowned by her parents, basically. Disowned may not be the right way to represent it. Uh, Her parents still just pretend she's the boy she was. Mm-hmm. Her aunt, who's the open-minded one, is still just an abrasive jerk. But basically, the only difference is doesn't want to cut Wanda out entirely. But it's still like, you know, you need to get right. So Wanda is trying to discover who she is. So Foxglove is also, even though Foxglove is probably the most minor of the main characters in the story, she was... Judy's girlfriend Mm. and Judy is one of the people that was in the diner in the famous diner issue when Dr. D made everyone go mad and she ended up killing herself in that issue. So she's dealing with the trauma of that relationship Mm -hmm. and she knows Judy died, but it's not like she was there for the the gory details of it. But uh, but yeah, she was in, I mean the, the whole point of that relationship was, you know, you're you're reading that story and you feel sympathetic for Judy, but then you realize that the reason she's in this position she's in is because she was abusive in that relationship. Um, she was hitting her girlfriend. Mm-hmm. So then we get to this one where we figure out that's who she is, and she's in this other relationship. And who is her partner in this? I, I don't remember her name. Hazel. Hazel. And then Hazel is conflicted. Early on in this story, she goes to talk to Barbie about she thinks she's pregnant because even though she's a lesbian in a relationship, she had sex with a guy because they were kind of drunk and she just kind of went with it. And she has all these very naive notions of things. So she like, she kind of represents the naive innocence, like having the freedom to do things and not necessarily being what she wanted, but she also just like kind of gave it a a shot, but not really Mm -hmm. knowing the consequences. So everybody in this uh, apartment building or whatever it is, aside from Thessaly, who is, you know, God knows how old, and George, who is just a plot device, basically, they're all trying to figure out who they are, making mistakes, and we see we see a lot of development in them throughout it. So I, I completely agree that all of this is about their development. I think that that's basically what Neil Gaiman is showing in this story is is the work that it takes and like the pain that we go through and how we can, we can go through difficult things and we use that to make different choices. And that's how we become better than, than just what we've experienced. Yeah. That's kind of, that's one of the things I took away from it. I guess one of the things I also took away from it on a a big scale was this notion of be yourself and don't keep, who you are hidden up in a secret world inside of you. Yeah. Like what a good example to that, like with one of the kind of the smaller details of it is the breakthrough with, um, with, uh, the, the lesbian couple. I'm sorry. I forgot their names already. I'm so yeah. bad. <laughs> Foxglove and Hazel. Thank you. Foxglove and with the, the relationship with Foxglove and Hazel, Fox, uh, Hazel gets outed as being pregnant by Thessaly. And as the story goes on, there's moments where Fox Glove will be like, oh, so blah, 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 huh? 
Um, but then when she's the most pissed off at her is like, when we get back, I'm going to yell at you. I'm going to call you names. I'm going to throw things. Well, number one, she never says she's going to hit her or hurt her. Mm-hmm. But then she makes the comment of like, do you know how expensive it is to take care of a baby? Like, we're going to have to buy a name book first. So this this bad experience where one of them did something stupid that is hurtful to the relationship, uh, Foxglove, instead of lashing back out, I mean, she, she tells her she's going to have to deal with her emotions, basically. But then she's like, but we're going to do this together in the end. Mm-hmm. I get, that, I think, was one of the, the biggest moments of, of just very clearly showing, like, this is how you get through something. Like, you're either choosing to throw away the relationship or you're choosing to figure out how to work things out. And, you know, you make the choices in that. Yeah, that was, I think, one of the most touching moments in the story is just that that moment between Foxglove and Hazel. Yeah. And, you know, when, when Hazel then, you know, grabs her hand and she, I think she says, oh, I love you. And she says, you damn well better, you know. <laughs> like, it's, yeah, that was just, it was it was very touching to see exactly that that she was angry and frustrated and but wasn't going to let that get in between what she decided to value more which is the two of theirs relationship and the two of them getting through this together yeah and it showed that you you can be angry and you can express your anger while still doing it with love you know a lot of times when people are angry they excuse any of their behaviors with that and you know i mean that's how you end up in an abusive relationship is you you deal with the anger, but then at the end they say, but you know I love you. You know, mm-hmm. that was just, you know, you start to build, and that's what Foxglove had gone through was an abusive relationship. So she was clearly expressing her anger, but at this in the same breath, like, it wasn't abuse, but I love you. You made me do this to you or something like that. It was, you know, expressed very differently. And, like, that's something that we should all be mindful of. We're all going to be angry at the people that we love at some point, but when we're expressing that anger, like we do need to share how we feel, but we need to combine it with sharing that that we love them. You know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So here's kind of a, a a weird hot take that I want us to discuss and either argue for or against. As I was reading this, and especially towards the end when we get the reveal of who the cuckoo is it kind of seemed like one of the big messages this story could be making is that having an overactive imagination is bad. And the reason why I saw that is it turns out this entire land is populated by creatures from um, Barbie's imagination. And in fact, this cuckoo who is trying to destroy this land is really something that was came out of Barbie's imagination and was lived so strongly in Barbie's dreams that she became a permanent fixture of that dream where she became like almost like a tangible dream within that reality and it, like I don't think that this is what he's he was saying but it kind of seems like he could be saying yeah having uh, too much of an imagination is a, is a bad thing I don't. Th- I don't think that that's what it was. Um, I had to stop and think about that for a moment, though. Yeah, right. Like it, it's shown as Morpheus is ending this this little world that all of the creatures inhabiting it are not all Barbies. They're from many other people who inhabited that space for their dreaming 
and the worlds that they made. Um, he even shows the first person who made that world with their dreams and made a pact with Morpheus, but they said that, you know, she, she died without enacting the pact. So the pact, it was still there. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so like all the creatures that were there, like there were ones from Barbie's imagination, but there were ones from many, many other people's dreams and imaginations that still lived there. But you're right with the point that the cuckoo was something different. The cuckoo was, was a different sort of being, which also was never clearly shown what, what the cuckoo actually was. Because the cuckoo wasn't just like all the other creatures in this dream that were created for the dream. It's like the cuckoo was something that was caught in that role, it seems like. So the the way I understood what the cuckoo was is that it was Barbie's childhood imagination in this land was so strong that it created the cuckoo out of that imagination. And it was some kind of subconscious realization of what her young self wanted that was so strong that it became an actual thing within this land of the dreams. And so it was created essentially out of the strength of Barbie's imagination. That's, yeah. that's kind of what I took it as. And so in, in a weird way, like that's where I started to think, well, is that where this overactive imagination is bad type of thing? Because the cuckoo is the villain of this whole thing. And this villain is a result of Barbie's imagination. So that's kind of where I started to piece those together. I, I don't think I'm kind of arguing this as a, a like a, a straw man or as a, a point that I don't think is quite true, but it was, it was something that I had thought along the way. And it, um, I think that if, if I were going to really extract what I think the, they're really saying here is that it's not an overactive imagination. That's bad. It's having an imagination where you try to, I don't know, hide from your imagination, that hiding from your imagination and stuffing it down into your dreams and not letting some of that come out and express itself in who you are is what's bad. I think that that would be my takeaway. Yeah. I think that that's, that's more what it's aiming for is um, if you try to not be who you are, if you try to hide who you are, it, it only creates bad things. And in this case, she was trying to hide from who she was in her imagination. So she had her life in the real world. And then she had her, her, her imagination. And even like you go back to her, her marriage with Ken, she, it seems based on the, the previous story that she was able to play the role that Ken wanted her to be, to be in that marriage because she escaped to her imagination each night when that was taken away she couldn't, she couldn't be what Ken wanted her to be. And like, even early on in the story, she, she can't even say that she stopped having sex. She had to spell it because she was so uncomfortable with it. So like she would, you know, Ken, you see in his imagination, like that's what he, he was hungriest for. He just wanted sex. Mm, it was like fast cars and sex. And yeah, that's, that's what his whole thing was centered around. So when she was able to escape to her imagination 
and detach herself from what how she was actually living her life, that's where the harm came from. She was not being herself. She was trying to be what other people wanted. Um, and then when she couldn't do that anymore, that relationship dissolves and she doesn't know who she is and doesn't know how to find herself. Um, but she stopped having the dreams and then um, the dreams came back for her. So I, I think it's not that an overactive imagination is bad. I think it's um, making the point that when you try to to hide who you are, when you try to not be who you are, that it, only bad things result from that. Yeah, well, and I think it's really saying that bad things will result for you and that you'll you'll be happier and more content and more fulfilled when you embrace that. Yeah. It's kind of funny talking about a story that's like there's the, the plot isn't the part that matters because we're not going like, and then this happened and let's discuss it. And then this yeah, happened and let's discuss yeah. it. I feel like in in a way it's it's a lot better to talk about like character by character. Yeah. And uh, we've focused quite a bit on, on Barbie. I guess one of the questions I also have is maybe the cuckoo because they make a really big point of – in the story, the message that this messenger was trying to send to them and that the cuckoo hunted them down and killed them so they couldn't send, it wasn't really a message. It was like a, like an encyclopedia entry about what the cuckoo was, which is a bird that lays its eggs in the nest of other birds and lets them be, uh, like grow up in those other nests. And it, made me also think that maybe another reading of what the cuckoo is is that the cuckoo is like that basically the cuckoo was a dream that found barbie's dream to nest in and mm-hmm. lay an egg in and that it is now trying to leave the nest and that was really what it was is is i, I don't really know because then I get into the question, well, was Barbie the cuckoo all along? And was she laying her own eggs in this nest that then these these chicks that hatch, the chicks being the cuckoo, who are now trying to leave the nest? I think, and that's where I think there's a little bit more, something more to the cuckoo, and you just kind of hit on it, is the cuckoo was planted there by another cuckoo. So I, I think like you just hit on something that the cuckoo is some sort of a, a dream being that grows in another dream that is able to go. And she was stuck there because of the pact that Morpheus had made with the original one that was never broken. So the land was never allowed to end. Like Morpheus says early on, these these little outlets of dreaming and stuff like that, they come and go. They live and they die. Um, so that's normal. And this one it seems like it was kept there longer so barbie's eggs were martin tenbones and you know the, the rat and the, the the monkey and the you know mm-hmm. so those those were the the eggs from her imagination that that grew in this dream and those are the ones that get killed as you go by the cuckoo because the cuckoo is doing what they said the cuckoo does and eliminating its competition basically you know, taking the nest for itself. The, the cuckoo, like, took over the story and made it hers. And the cent- the central part of the story was the princess, Barbie is a child. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that that's what the, the cuckoo was and kind of what happened. That's where, you know, throughout the story, you get the different characters that, that die 
that are trying to get Barbie through the quest. That's like the equivalent of, you know, the cuckoo lays its egg and then it's, you know, tries to take over the whole nest. But, um, like when the, like it says, when the, the baby cuckoo hatches, it's still blind and vulnerable, but like its instincts are just to thrash about and try to kick everything else out of the nest. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. That makes sense. So it, we're thinking maybe the cuckoo is another dream like this that is just trying to, it lays its eggs in dreams and then tries to escape those dreams. Yeah, I think so. And even Morpheus at the end, uh, when Barbie's like, the cuckoo needs to be punished. It's evil. And Morpheus, she says it's evil and dangerous. And Morpheus says, dangerous, yes, but she's just acting to her nature. Is that evil? Mm-hmm. And so, like, you know, Morpheus recognizes the cuckoo something different. The cuckoo doesn't just get uncreated with the other aspects of the stream. Um, so I think everything lends to that. The cuckoo took this role, and then when Barbie comes along, it gets it's a little confusing because the cuckoo tells Barbie, I'm a part of you. But then the whole time she's like, I'm a part of you, sort of. <laughs> mm-hmm. She took she took a yeah. part of her. She's playing the role of, of a part of her because that's her role. That's the, you know, kind of like the cuckoo's in the other bird's nest and like, hey, look, I'm your baby bird. Take care of me. Now I'm old enough to leave. Screw you, you know? <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. Okay, yeah, I think that that makes a bit more sense than what I had thought of the cuckoo as. Yeah. And this, uh, Luz, the, I don't know, parrot or whatever it is Mm -hmm. that in the end gets killed, uh, when the cuckoo is like, yep, that's the cuckoo. And the Luz is just like, yeah, yeah. Luz represents like the parent bird that is like, all right, this is my young. Got to take care of them. The cuckoo even says to Luz, you know, you, you were basically trying to fight against me for, I don't know, 10 years or whatever it was that she said. And then once the cuckoo was able to talk to Luz, <clears throat> Luz flipped to her side. I think Luz's character is just like so, so pitiful there. I think it also kind of represents the, the changing yourself to match what somebody else wants. And I think that that's what the, this whole story, like we said, is about is, you know, figuring out who you are versus playing the role that somebody else wants you to play. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like Luz is just kind of like stripped bare. I was doing what I thought was right, but then you told me to do this other thing. So now I'm pitifully just, yes, and I'll just die for you. And, you know, there's nothing. It's like, are you sad that Luz died? Like, not really sad, but like you're, you have that little bit of like, just pitiful. It's pitiful, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like she it's if Barbie had stayed playing the role that Ken wanted her to play and stayed in that eventually like you stop being able to be sad and you're just like, it, it's something different. Like you still feel bad, but it's kind of just like you, you feel bad that they're so pitiful and that they don't do anything to change it. Yeah, I can see that. So one of the characters I thought was really interesting throughout this was Wanda and Wanda is a character that has embraced who she is. Mm-hmm. and has very much decided this is who I am. So in some ways, I feel like Wanda is the example of what the, like the end result of what the other characters seem to be going through the process of learning, this a notion of embracing who you are and going with that and not hiding from that at all, but really fully bringing it out. I, I think Wanda's the most of that, and I think that she's really interesting because even even with her, there's um, there's battles with that. Like she, 
she couldn't bring herself to have the surgery. She was afraid of surgery. So to have the surgery mm-hmm. to kind of take the last physical step with transitioning who she is. But at the same point, even without that, like there's the, the point where um, Hazel points out something <laughs> you, about her. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh-huh. And she, she uh, very quickly is like, that's, you know, like slams the door on that. Uh, but I think it's later when she's talking to George, uh, or George's face nailed to the wall, um, and George is saying that she's she's a man, and that you know when it comes to the gods, meaning the moon in this case, uh, it goes down to chromosomes. So that's something that she can't change. And she she very clearly says, um, you know, like that's just a lump of flesh. That's not who I am. Uh, and I know who I am and she like, she doesn't waver at that point. Uh, even though like in the, the story, her genetic makeup stops her from being able to go on the same journey as the, the women that have a different genetic makeup, Mm -hmm. but then that still doesn't stop her from believing who she is. So it's like, she has barriers to where she can't take certain steps. And, you know, one of those barriers is, she can't bring herself to have the surgery. Other barriers is she can't change her genetics, but through that, she knows who she is and doesn't waver in that. So it's interesting because she has the dynamic of, I can't change this about myself. I can't take certain steps where the other characters that are trying to figure out who they are, there are steps they can take through those. But when I think, um, you know, she kind of represents that we can still, be sure of who we are and um we may always have certain adversity to face in being who we really are yeah because i remember reading that and at first thought oh this seems like it's taking a, a weird position on the trans experience where the story essentially says oh well according to the gods you're you're still a, a man because that's what you were born as and that's what your chromosomes were when you were born and that seems you know like it's kind of saying well it doesn't really matter you, you know it's that typical all the bs that still exists in our world towards trans people but then what i saw it as is wanda very clearly saying i don't care what anyone else says, I know what I am. And so it, it was, I I thought the most important thing there was setting up Wanda's view on this, that it doesn't really matter what so-called authorities may say, or power structures may say about this. What truly matters is what I know that I am. And so in in a weird way, I felt that was fairly reaffirming. Yeah, and it's really interesting to me that this story is 30 years old. And, you know, for Neil Gaiman to... I was, you know, when when I first saw a transgender character in this, it's like I had a little bit of that, like, I wonder how this is going to be handled. Because it's been a very long time since I've read this, so I didn't remember at all. Um, and even then, like, when I read this over 10 years ago, like, I didn't have any kind of grasp on transgender so I, I think that some of that stuff just basically just went over my head and I just kind of took it in stride without understanding it at all. And now I have a very different understanding of it. So I was wondering how he was going to approach it, uh, if it was going to be done well, or if it was going to be something, you know, like there's so many things when we look back to um, to media created so long ago that by what we know now, 
it'll be kind of cringy. But then, you know, maybe they did the best with it they could then. But looking at this, um, like, I feel that Neil Gaiman did much better than just like, oh, they didn't really know what to do with it. And they did their best. Like, I think that he actually treated it very sensitively without avoiding it. Yeah. Um, and I was mm-hmm. I was pretty impressed by that because it's especially like with not having the same understanding that we would have nowadays. It'd be really easy to botch that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that this is very ahead of its time uh, along those lines. I I feel like in in a lot of ways, like this is way ahead of where a lot of social or cultural understanding was even like 10 years ago, you know? Yeah. So I, I was also very similarly, I, I guess I read it different just because uh, I think the, the trans experience has been explained much more and is much more, I guess, understood now, I guess. I, I, I know I've heard a lot more about it. So I feel like I, you know, understand it much better than I did in, you know, in the nineties when this came out, when it just seemed like, Oh, it's a cross dresser or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I mean, when this came out, the, the term transgender, I don't think was ever used is always something that now would be considered more abrasive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's um, like, it really is kind of amazing to me to look back in this and I, like, I don't, I, I just, the way it's treated, I think is done with, with much more respect than like we, even people that want to treat something respectfully, like they didn't have the the knowledge necessarily to. And I think that Neil Gaiman really did a good job with that. Yeah, I, I agree. In the, the last, uh, the last issue of this too, where Barbie goes and meets Wanda's family and how abrasive they are. I liked how that was all handled. Like it really shows the, the crap that people have to deal with in a position like that. And her, her strength in managing through it where it's like, she doesn't just fold to what they want, but she also realizes that to accomplish what she wants, um, ignoring some of them is, is better. But then at the end, she still writes Wanda's name is Wanda on the grave with, uh, with her favorite color of lipstick. Mm-hmm. I liked that They did that. And it, it didn't just ignore the fact of, like it really made us be confronted with how awful, people are and how when we're trying to be ourselves or find stuff even the part where she talks about going to the comic shop and how harassed she is in the comic shop just being a girl in a comic shop like there's another thing like aside from the transgender issue but you know just her being a female trying to go buy a comic book for her friend who passed away and being harassed by men because she's a girl where she's not supposed to be you know is a place for guys i mean that's that's something that like being comic fans we've even now we still hear plenty of stories about how awful some men in some comic shops are, you know, and, and this, it kind of brings up one of the things that I think is kind of difficult to talk about with this story in that we're both middle-aged straight white dudes. (laughs) And Uh, we're not middle-aged yet. I, well, I am (laughs) No, technically (laughs) you're not, you're, you're still not quite there. What? 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 What are you talking about? I think middle, middle age is like forty-five. Okay. Well, I I consider basically 
late 30s to late 50s is middle-aged. 45 to 65 is the definition of middle-aged. Hmm, that sounds suspect to me. You're not middle-aged yet. I don't know about that. I'm definitely, I don't feel young. So. <laughs> we're not, we're not young, but we're not middle-aged yet. Dude. You, okay. You're ruining the point. Who cares? Right? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, but so, you know, we're two like straight white dudes and who are we to talk about this? You know, like I actually, I, I would be very interested to, know what a lot of women think of this story what trans women think of this story and and that sort of thing because it seems to be speaking much more to um, that experience and it seems like some things on this in this story are universal right and a lot of the stuff that we've touched on is universal like these ideas about um, being yourself and not hiding who you are, not bottling up your imagination, uh, all of those sorts of things. That's, that's very universal. I think, you know, everybody that applies to everybody, but then there's things that are portrayed like about Wanda's experience that I don't think that we are as, uh, well equipped to, talk about in terms of like you know it's it seems like it's very well done to us but i don't know are we missing something you, you know i just and i don't know because that's uh, i think an obvious blind spot that we both have so i i am very curious how this resonates with with others that aren't uh from of the same background as us and yeah i mean that that's a big thought of of mine as well and i think that yeah, as you said us being who we are, which we can't help that, that we're white, that we're men, that we're the age we are, where we're not children and we're not so old that people don't listen to us anymore, but we're not middle-aged. Uh, <laughs> we, you know, we're, we're in a place where we have less experience to understand this, but like to be the best allies we can be to people who do experience this stuff. Um, I think it comes down to listening, being willing to be wrong, being willing to be told that we're wrong, which is something that's really hard to get comfortable with. Uh, you know, people don't want to be wrong. And if they're wrong, they want to avoid that feeling and either accept it and move on quickly without really looking at it. But I think one of the most powerful things that we can do as human beings is when we're wrong, really look at it, really look at why we're wrong. And how can we understand better? And it's not even about being right. You know, I think in, in every relationship and it, with how we treat other people and like it's the most potent in our most personal relationships, like with our spouses or with, you know, our children or stuff like that. If we make it about being right, then all we do is erode the relationship. And it's about understanding how we make others feel in those cases. But ultimately, like when we're wrong about something, we need to be able to hear that we're wrong and, and show that that's not what's important is whether or not we're right or wrong, but that we want to understand better so we can be less wrong when we get the opportunity again, you know, and it's a continual growth thing. But so you and I, by talking about this, we're not going to understand this the best, but by us talking about this, I think that others that are in similar positions to us where we're not actually directly confronted with this stuff can think about it. And I think that that's the key is 
when we put ourselves in a position to think about these things, we can grow and be better. And when we do that, we're better for other people. And then we help other people more. So I think that that's where us talking about a story like this and talking about these things that we could have just kind of skirted that and been like, yep, that's not really our wheelhouse. We don't, we don't want to step on any toes, but by talking about it, there's going to be some 45 to 65 year old white male listening to us, uh, that hasn't thought about this before. And then maybe at some point in their life, they're actually going to be confronted with this a little bit and they can act in a different way that's going to create a better experience for somebody else that can be very meaningful and impactful. Well, yeah, hopefully that feels like a good endpoint, but I, I, there's one, one, there's one other thing I want to talk about in this. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and that's the, the journey that Thessaly and Foxglove and Hazel go on. Mm-hmm. And because Thessaly calls down the moon <clears throat> and that's what, allows them to enter into the dream. One of the things that was, I think, shown in that is, so y- y- you may have picked up on this or or not, or you've, I'm sure you've seen it, even if you haven't quite picked up on the theme of it, but there's this theme of the three ladies mm-hmm. that runs throughout this. And one is the old crone, one is the young lady and one is the like warm grandmotherly type um woman and there are always three of them the and they've shown up numerous times throughout this series and have you like picked up on that yeah like when um yeah earlier on when morpheus calls the three yeah exactly yeah. mm-hmm and then also, I think Rose Walker ran into them in a closet where the three showed up and talked to her. And then she turned on the lights and there was no one there and stuff like that. But it's, yeah. it's a continuous, it's it's always a motif of these three women. And it's going to continue to be really important. But the three of them w- w- seemed to portray these three women also with Thessaly as the old crone. Uh, Foxglove as the uh, young lady and Hazel as the motherly, grandmotherly uh, one of them. Mm. And so it was interesting to me that there just once again, that motif was really shown here. And it's clearly a very important motif. And um, I'm not quite sure what the if there are ancient mythological uh, underpainings of this, but it seems like the type of thing that there, there might be. And it seems like it's kind of this idea of these, these three always seem much more strong and powerful and important than almost anything. It's like they, they almost are more powerful than the endless, you know, is like that was when when Morpheus was first talking to them and he was asking the questions about like where do I find my stuff? Yeah, because that's where we first saw them. Is he he called them to ask where's my stuff after he yeah. got out in the very first arc, and so it was just interesting to see them represented by these people. Yeah, I I, I don't think it's that they're more powerful. I think it's that they're strict rules with how oh, yeah. all of these things intertwine that cannot be broken. Um, and 
mythology is like huge throughout Sandman. So there's all different kinds of mythology and these have to interact and those rules of the mythology like cannot be violated. And that's why, you know, when Morpheus calls them, he still has to play by the rules of the game. But at the same time, the characters know the rules and they know how they can manipulate them to their best advantage. But those rules are still in place. So Morpheus can't just call them and then like abduct them and make him make them answer all of his questions because he can't cross that, you know, the certain lines. So they have to answer the questions, but they only have to answer the questions. And it's going to be nothing outside of that. They're not going to answer two. They're not going to answer four. They're going to answer three questions. That's it. But they have to answer those. Mm-hmm. So those rules like provide the structure for all of these different things to interact. And if any of those, it's kind of like how, you know, our atmosphere is like just the right percentage of oxygen and yada, yada, yada. So it's like life can exist. We don't burst into a giant ball of flames and it has to be the perfect balance for it to work. Right. So it's kind of like that. There has to be the perfect balance with, with the mythologies and stuff like that for them to do their roles and throughout Sandman, we've repeatedly seen where when something tries to push outside of his role, it creates a great disruption. Even in this one, by Thessaly calling the moon, it creates a disruption to the natural environment of the world that brings a hurricane that had passed back, which knocks down the building that kills Wanda and um, kills the old lady that ended up uh, saving Barbie by landing on top of her. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you get this intertwined pathways thing where that old lady, they ran across her at the beginning of the story. And then Wanda saw her out in the storm with something falling on her and brought her inside to save her. And that saved Barbie. So like in, in the long run by Wanda acting in a way that was considerate of others, she saved Barbie, which she should have, she would have sacrificed her life to save Barbie in a heartbeat. She did it accidentally by acting the right way throughout. Mm-hmm. So anyways, like rules to things, consequences to things, and then things come together. And like, you know, once again, going back to being who you are, regardless of other people, trying to find yourself uh, creating better results than denying who you are or denying doing what you think is right. Wanda saved Barbie's life. By being herself and by helping somebody, even though it was uh, putting herself at risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and one other thing I want to point out is, so this uh, this story had a lot of characters that we had seen before that came back into it. But we're also going to see, well, I don't know if we'll see them, but other readers will see Foxglove and Hazel they are in the first death mini series as well. I still need to read that. I have it digitally on comiXology. Yeah. Uh, those are really good. And I, or at least I, I don't know if I've ever read the second one, but the first one, it just basically feels like, I mean, it is another Sandman story. It's just where death is the only endless that appears rather than Morpheus. Yeah. So they're, they're very much, I think, I would consider them part of the overall Sandman work. Yeah, and I think that that's all I've got about this one. That is all. We are done. Okay. All right. So then the next up in this is a set of, I think, three short stories again. So I think we're going to have another short story episode coming up. And before we get into Brief Lives, which is 
one of my favorites. So I'm excited because the next batch of stories has, I think, my favorite Sandman story in it. And then we get to Brief Lives, which is probably my favorite Sandman arc. So I'm I'm excited about what's coming up. Yeah, this is cool for me getting to the point that we're at, because I've said this before, but I read all of Sandman over 10 years ago. I've reread the first couple of trades repeatedly, but I never got further than that in trying to reread it. Uh, so we're well into territory that I only vaguely remember. Like the, the last story that we just read, I very vaguely, as we went on, remembered like, oh yeah, that's right, let's screws them at the end, you know? Mm-hmm. And that was maybe the only detail I actually remembered. Uh, other than I think that when we got to the point where um, Barbie was going into the house, that it was like, oh, this 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 was my house growing up. I remembered right before it happened that she then was confronted with herself as a child. But I didn't remember mm-hmm. any of the details. Like, there were two very small bits that I remembered at all about this. Uh, so, yeah, this is, like, completely – it's really cool to me to go through this. And, like, I really don't remember it. Well, cool. Well, that's neat. It's nice to be uh... – experiencing this fresh there's some things that i don't remember i think a game of you is the arc that i have read the least so it was nice for me to revisit it and i overall i really like this one i think that this one is is great and is I don't want to say one of the better sandman arcs because they're they're all really really good but this is up there i think with like the best of what Sandman is about. Yeah, I agree. I really liked this one. Okay. All right. Well, that's going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for tuning in and you can find other episodes wherever you found this one. And we've looked at all of the Sandman stories up to this one and we're going to keep going with the rest. So stop on by for more. Okay. That's it. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Bye.